You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Dave is right. It is good to hear the singing of you all. It's part of the work of ministry, isn't it, of each one of you ministering as your voice, no matter what tune it's in, what key it's in, doesn't matter, as we join together. And it's a good taste of what we will be praising the Lord for, His glory forever in eternity. I want you to take your scriptures and find again Romans chapter 7. We are in the seventh verse of chapter 7, Romans chapter 7 verse. We're going to look at through verse 12 here today. On your way to Romans 7, I believe I've got a picture in there. <laughs> this one was from Malachi last week. This, I've got to read it. It's kind of funny. Uh, we were bound by law. We were talking about the marriage. The lady that was married to the husband, bound by law, till death do us part. One dies, poof, <laughs> and released from the law. And so the illustration, bound by law, bound by our sin, poof. One dies, the chains of sin are broken, and we are released from the law. Thanks, Malachi. Let's read uh, God's Word as we continue. Looking through Romans 7, kind of a new new section here, I, I think, although related. Obviously, there's a question here, but let's, let's read his word together. Verse 7, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let me pray for us again. Father, as we study your word, we recognize it is your word and what scripture says you say. So help us to come under the teaching of it. Lord, in this passage and in this section, we are faced with our own sinfulness, our own need of you. And I pray that you would just work through this time and each each one that has gathered, again, by your sovereign hand, ordained each one to be here today in this place, listening right now. And Lord, we pray that you would work in the heart where that is your work in the heart to show us our need again for you and our hope in Christ alone. So we just pray for this time that your spirit would grant understanding to your word and what comes from the preacher today. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, coming out of verses 1 through 6, the impression may be that since one has died to the law, poof, Uh, The law itself, or the written code, which I think Paul has in mind here, the Mosaic law, the law laid down by God to ancient Israel, somehow this this law is bad, and it's something to avoid. And in all of Paul's instruction of our, last week we looked at our belonging to another, our belonging to Christ, he now takes some time, I think, to examine the present relationship of the law 
and the believer and sin. And the setting of this tension of law and sin and belonging to Christ, the setting is that, I think, of war. If you look down further at verses 22 through 23, it says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. It, it's life in the, and this won't surprise, life in the already and the not yet. We have already been made by God's grace, already slaves unto God, this free gift of God in Christ Jesus for eternity. We, that's what we've already been. We've, we've died to the law and we belong to another. That's verse 4 of chapter 7. And yet, we are not yet home. We're not yet what we will be in our glorified bodies. And Paul sees in his members, these members, I think, of his body, just another law waging war. But the victory, however, unlike wars where maybe the outcome is, is unknown and you're not just not sure how it's going to end, the victory, it's secure. It's secure in Christ alone. That's where he's going to get to in verse 24. And yet here we are in this battle, and so here we are in chapter 7. Somehow it brought to my mind the phrase, know thy enemy, know the enemy. It comes from Sun Tzu's Art of War. And you can tell me afterwards if you've read Art of War, like other books, I've not read the Art of War. It doesn't look terribly long, but it's kind of that, if you've probably been in the military, you probably read it and understood it. I think it's, there's a lot of, there's these helpful things in there. Here's the quote that's in this book, The Art of War. It goes like this, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. The enemy in our passage is personified here, I think, by Paul, is sin. The law of sin, which is the device of the ancient enemy, the serpent who Peter calls your adversary, the devil. God's giving us wisdom here in chapter 7, going into chapter 8, just not only of the, the enemy of sin, but really how to defeat the enemy, really how the enemy has already been defeated, already, and yet we live in this. So let's head into chapter 7, let's look back at verse 7 and Paul's question once again, what then shall we say that the law is sin, question mark, by no means, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not know what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Paul makes it clear here. He's clear. The law is not sin. Sometimes we might be tempted to look at that, look at the law in that way. The law is bad, or, and grace is good. The law is bad, the commandments. But in Psalm 119, described the law there, the commands, they're described how? As a delight to the psalmist. They're described as righteous. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your law. And so the law is not sin. Further, if we just jump ahead, I'm kind of using both here, both ends of our passage. Verse 12, this is confirmed. Verse 12, Paul says, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's Paul be mistaken here. The law is not the problem, as we're going to see. The actual problem, the battle, is in the realm of sin. There's nothing, nothing absolutely, nothing wrong with God's law. 
What's wrong is us in our sin. Israel was shown this already, having the law. They were always shown this in the sacrificial system. It was on display. God had given them the law, and yet what did he give them? Priests and sacrifices, the means of mediating between them and God and the sacrifices, purifying themselves as a people disobedient to the law. So they saw that even then. But Paul continues in that second part of verse 7 that I read about coveting this example. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. The law caused Paul here to know his sin. And we've already seen this through Romans, verse 20 of chapter 3. said there, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. So the law shows us our sin. It's, it's one of the primary uses of the law. Doug Moo writes this. He says, the law, by branding sin as transgression and bringing wrath and death, death unmasks sin in its true uh, colors. But we should probably go further and conceive this understanding of sin is not in a purely noetic way. I think he means not a purely mental way, but in terms of actual experience. Through the law, quote, I have come to experience sin for what it really is. Through the law, sin worked in me. All kinds of sinful desires we'll see in verse 8. And through the law, sin came to life and brought death, verses 9 through 11. It is through this actual experience of sin then that I come to understand the real sinfulness of sin. Through this, Paul is seeing sin for what it truly is. And so he gives an example in verse 7, and that is of coveting. You shall not covet. Here's the law, Paul saying, for instance, I wouldn't have known if the law had not said this. Paul takes us back to that Tenth commandment. You can find it in Exodus chapter 20. It goes like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is in your neighbor's. The kids that are with us in the homeschool group, you shall not covet your neighbor's, remember, his pie either. Don't, that's everything. Don't covet your neighbor, what he has. Doug Moo points out, among the Jews here, even, coveting was seen as the summation of the Mosaic law, seeing coveting as the root of all sins. That was kind of the, the, the Jewish outlook on this, coveting, desire. That may be, maybe that's perhaps why Paul chose this particular one. So this idea of coveting, it's, it's not simply... Maybe we, we learned it just a, you know, low-key. It's not just your neighbor's pie or, or covering his green lawn of your neighbor or his truck. Although it is that, it's desire. It's lust and desire for what you cannot have. That which is forbidden. We'll come back to this a little bit. Paul goes on in verse 8, goes on regarding coveting. So he says there, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 
Leon Morris, you've got the ESV. He sees the word opportunity here. Do you see it? But sin, seizing an opportunity. I think it could read seizing an occasion. Leon Morris, he, Morris sees this opportunity as that from which an attack is launched, a starting point or a base of operations. Here's sin's base of operations, and it comes through the commandment. F.F. F. Bruce, another commentator, says, Sin is personified as a powerful enemy who has established a base of operations within the citadel of, he calls it man's soul, I think within, within us. This base of operations, and an opportunity comes through the law. Sin uses, then, what is good and righteous. Again, verse 12 as a base station within us to produce all sorts of desires and lusts. And we might think, how does this practically work? How do we see this? How does sin, by, by knowing the law, how does it produce in me all sorts of sin? And it may be different for each one of you. I'm going to read a little extended quote from Leon Morris that helps us, I think, in two ways here. He says this, It is a distressing fact about human nature that any prohibition tends to awaken us a desire to transgress that prohibition. The standard illustration is the passage in Augustine's Confessions in which he speaks of the time as a boy when he joined his companions in stealing pears. Not because they wanted them, says they were feeding them to pigs, but because they wanted the pleasure of disobeying the law. Now, another writer quotes from, he says, the most unlikely, a most unlikely theologian in Mark Twain. Here's what Mark Twain said. This plain-spoken American said that, uh, well, this is one quoting, talking about Mark Twain. This plain-spoken American said that most idealists overlooked one feature of the human makeup, which is very prominent, namely plain mulishness. I think that's to be like a mule, mulishness. Plain mulishness or perverseness. Mark Twain said that if a mule thinks he knows what you want him to do, he will do just the opposite. I've not owned mules, but I'm thinking if you have... Okay, some people say, yeah, that's how that is. And Twain admitted he was like that himself. Often mean for the sake of meanness. But the fault lies not in the ideal, but in the man who reacts against it. The point of it all is that until the command not to do an evil thing comes, we may not feel much urge to do it. But when we hear the command, our native mulishness, our mule-like tendency takes over. And so the fault is not in the command. The fault is in us, in our mulishness, in our sin. And that was, all from, that was from Leon Morris there. I think we see this. We see this in children, just that... Just as simple as don't touch that. And what's the urge? Well, I want to do that. Or we see it in the world. We must see it in in us. That which is forbidden excites in us, in our, I think, our rebellious nature, this desire to not obey. You see it in the library. If you're with a group of friends, the library says, be quiet. And your group of friends, doesn't the laugh, it's just like, oh, we're being loud. And it's, it's from that. That's just a corny illustration to even something more somber like in a marriage you think of a husband and wife committed to one another but proverbs speaks of who the forbidden woman i think there's something to that what's forbidden 
attracts that rebellious nature in us. Proverbs 5 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I looked it up. I think it's a genre of romance books, forbidden romance. This is is a, a selection you can read. What is it that makes that popular? Rebellion involves knowing the law to a certain degree involves pleasure. But even in verse 8, there's, there's a glimmer of hope if you see it at the end of the verse. Paul says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, Paul's not going here at this point, but he has already. We saw it in verse 14 of chapter 6. Just look back there. What if verse 14 said? For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The glimmer of hope is the gospel of God in Christ Jesus. That's our hope. Not that we will somehow get out of this. It's that he gets us out of this by his gospel and what he works in us. Okay, on to verse 9 then. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, I will admit, this passage and chapter as a whole can be challenging. And that's, again, lean on Peter's words. There's things hard to understand. I think I talked about that last week. Challenging to look through and, and how Paul, what does he mean in these things, what he's saying. There's different opinions here as, as like, who is the I that's speaking? Is this Paul? Um, or even in this whole section, is he looking back, or is this kind of a, Paul's kind of using this like a, a picture of the Garden of Eden, and this is Adam and sin and that idea, or maybe it's Israel. One, I think Doug Mood sees this more as a, a picture of Israel, or is this simply just Paul's experience? I tend to go with this is Paul here. I, I just I lean with that, that this is Paul saying this is my experience. This is how it is, and so we've got to try to understand, though, what does Paul mean if he's speaking about this? How is he alive apart from the law? I thought sin... I thought we're dead in, in sin. In what way? I don't think Paul here is meaning he was alive in terms of innocence or, or guiltlessness or sinlessness. I, I think it's in a sense of chapter 6, verse 20. If you look back there, hopefully it's close for you. It says, Therefore, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But then he goes on to ask, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you're now Ashamed, the end of those things is death. So it was a time for Paul of supposed freedom, kind of a, a false, not kind of, a false freedom when he was alive. But then the commandments coming, and I, I think I would, I would see this as part of an awakening within Paul by God the, in the heart, opening the eyes to truly behold God in his law. The commandment coming, he was alive, the commandment comes, Sin came alive, and I died. Here's how Leon Morris, uh, what he says regarding as to what Paul may mean here. He says that there had been a time in his experience, Paul, when he had not realized the force of the law's demands, a time when he was under no conviction of sin. He goes on to say, Paul is referring to the life of the natural man, the happy pagan, the person who lives cheerfully, 
with no reference to law and with an untroubled conscience. He is not alive with the life that the New Testament writers so often speak about. He is alive in the sense that he has never been put to death as a result of a confrontation with the law of God. His lack of remorse and his enjoyment of the evil he does make up a sorry imitation of that life which is life indeed. Is that helpful? I'm going to keep reading from him, but hopefully that's helpful seeing this, this happy pagan. He's just happy to go. There's no true conviction. Yes, there's the law, but he's not sensing that underneath and who God is. Morris continues, when the commandment came, it killed forever, speaking of Paul, the proud Pharisee, thanking God that he was not as other men and sh- sure of his merits before God. It killed off the happy sinner. For it showed him the seriousness, not so much of sin in general as of his own sin. The coming of the law in that sense always kills off our cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves for what we really are, sinners, and we die. He says here, the thought is, and he says this, the thought is to realize that we are not good and decent people In God's, uh, let me read this again. Here here the thought is that to realize that we are not good and decent people in God's sight is a death. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance. Paul's describing here, I think, verse verse 9, this time of no conviction per se. Yes, the law of God written on the heart, but the command of God and therefore who God is has not come home to his heart in a way that means death. Simply a happy pagan. I guess I would ask here, is there not in every believer in Christ this confrontation of the law's demands and then sin springing to life and thus seeing our desperate need? Do you see your need for a Savior or are you happy, a happy pagan in sin. I would say even seeing sin for what it is, hearing God's law coming under its conviction is a work of God, a work of His Spirit. That's what the Spirit does. And if that is not evident, pray, Lord, show that to me. I seem quite happy in sin. By God's saving grace, may that conviction and that that death lead you to the one who is life itself leads you to Jesus Christ. Verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. God says this and kind of wrestle with the commandment that proved to be uh, that promised life proved to be death. Leviticus 18 talks about the law in a, in a life kind of giving way. Leviticus 18, 18, 4 through 5 says, you shall shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So there's a sense in which the law offered life. And the ESV points out when when the Pentateuch speaks of living by keeping God's statutes and rules, It refers to this enjoying life under God's pleasure. We looked at, when we look back in chapter 5, verse 20, 
uh, said there's the SV again, the, the study Bible said the typical Jewish view in Paul's day was that God gave the law to counteract the sinful human impulse. So in Judaism, there was the proverb, the more Torah law, the more life. The problem, however, with that is the sin and the sin within each one of us. I think God's deceiving us. There really is life in walking in the commands of God, delighting in His law. Psalm 119, I love your law, and yet those commands are the very opportunity, and you see the tension for sin to have a base of operations and produce the opposite of unrighteousness. So look at verse 11. Paul says this, For sin, seizing an opportunity, kind of explanation, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. And so we're back to sin's base of operations. So we see the law in the life of a sinner who understands the command. Jump ahead just down to verse 13 here. We read this, and we'll probably get into it more the next week. Paul's other question, did that which is good, referring to the law, if the law is good, did that then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The war then and the battle is not us against the the law. Verse 12, the law is holy. The battle is the sin within us. And to know thy enemy is to both know that there is one who deceives, that is Satan, and I think his weapon is that of our indwelling sin. 1 John 3 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, to be sure, we cannot claim in our sin, well, well then it's the devil making me sin. The devil made me sin. No, we, we love our sin. We love the disobedience when it's there to disobey the command. And we're responsible. And yet Satan uses the law, that which is good and holy, and wages a war amongst our members in the sin that dwells within, leading to death. And yet the foolishness of Satan does not see what we sang about this morning, the power of the cross. There upon that cross, that's where God's just wrath was poured out on Christ for all of our lawlessness all of our sin. Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. And then he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day, having defeated death so that all who are in Christ are thus alive and freed from what bound us before. It's the gospel that penetrates us who even seeing the law fall so short, and it, and it just produces sin. Today the question is, are you a happy pagan or a miserable wretch? And I use that word wretch, that's what Paul calls himself in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Better to be miserable and find hope in Christ than to be happy and find destruction in the end. Do you stay miserable in Christ? No. Better to be miserable in your sin leading you to Christ than to be happy 
Only the good die young, that Billy Joel song again. No. That's, the end of that is destruction. So two things as we close in knowing the enemy. Number one, the law is good. The law is good. Psalm 119, you can read it. It is true. We are to delight in the law of God, all of his word. It reveals to us his nature and at the same time his steadfast love and his justice. And it reveals what it means to live for his sake and live for his name. And yet, number two, sin seizes an opportunity with the law. Right on the heels of the truth of how good God's law is, is sin. Even at the end of Psalm 119, even that psalmist, I think, pleads to the Lord for help in this. And it's very interesting that that is tucked in to a psalm all about the glories of the law of God. Sin takes this opportunity. We want to dedicate ourselves to following God, and sin rears its head, and we're plunged yet to despair. If you are wrestling with these things or wrestling with sin, struggling to live for God, and yet you are well aware of your own sin, be encouraged in that. I'm not trying to just be positive for you, but be encouraged. The law is doing its work, and it's doing its work on your heart, and it's increasing your trespass so that, what did we see? As the, as the law increased, as sin increased, grace increased all the more, that it might lead you forever to the Savior, the one who died on that cross to set us free. If you know Christ as your Savior, rejoice. You have passed from death to life. Though we live in the already, not yet home. And and we look forward to that. If you be a happy pagan that is becoming miserable today, praise God. Rejoice and then trust in Christ to save you. And if you simply be a happy pagan, I have no idea my sin and my need. Pray and ask God. We will pray Others are praying for you and pray that you would see the joy of the Lord, your need in his joy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray there is no happy pagan in this room. That we would all claim both and at the same time miserable wretch, worm is I and I have a great Savior. His name is Jesus Christ and he's the name that is above every name. But in Him alone is salvation. Lord Jesus, guide us in this fight. Help us to understand this nature of sin that though defeated still has that indwelling nature in us and rears its head as we seek to follow You. And may we lean again on the glorious cross, the power of the cross, foolishness to the world, to the wise, to to whom you've given, Lord, wisdom. Lord, lead us there. May we glory in what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.